Hammerly is one of the most amazing people I've ever met, and that's true. I'm not just saying that to be kind of like Kurt, where he says everyone, he loves everyone. No, actually, sorry. <laughs> love you, Kurt. <laughs> love you, Kurt. It's, it's, Kurt actually does love everyone that much. It's actually just true. But, uh, but Tamerly is amazing. Her whole family is amazing. Uh, she's got four wonderful kids. Uh, she's served this church in so many different capacities. And uh, she's, she's done miracles with our children in this church. Um, she's taught me many things. I went down to uh, volunteer a couple times with the kids, and I would just see what she would do, and I was always blown away. So I know we're in for a treat today. So um, please give a very, very warm welcome to Tamerly. Thank you. I don't need that. <laughs> Good morning, Lake Sam. I'm going to pull a curtain and say, that's really bright. <laughs> um, wow, it's good to be here. It's good to see you all out here. As Jeff was saying, I have been here for over 14 years, which is actually, I think, longer than Kurt. And I was talking to Joanna Iwasaki this morning, and she was the one playing the keyboards. And I was commenting, it wasn't really that long ago that I was teaching her in junior high. And she said, yeah. I remember you were pregnant with Anna, and everyone had a birth plan in case you went into labor during Sunday school. <laughs> like, great, that would have worked well. Um, okay. I want to introduce you to my family, because I do know a lot of you, but there are a lot of faces I don't know, and it's, I'm sad that I don't know a lot of these faces, so I thought I'd take a minute and show you who my kids are and who my family is, and this is my family a few years back. <laughs> Some of you may remember them at that age. This, however, is my family now. <laughs> And if you'll notice, one in there doesn't quite look like the other. <laughs> That's Maoshi. She lived with us last year. She was from Ghana and was an exchange student. And we had a wonderful time with her. And we took her to um, Arches National Park. And I'll put a plug in. If you've never been there, that is worth a family vacation. Now, this right here would be me and Eric. <laughs> That's 20 years ago. <laughs> and... This is us now. <laughs> so, now that you know my family a little bit, I want to tell you my story. And it's kind of story time today, and that's why I'm behind the table. And I just want you to know a little bit of my journey. So we'll start here. Um, a few weeks ago, Kurt started the soap series, right? And we were listening to his sermon, and what we do every day when we get in the car is we do a sermon debrief. What was your takeaway point? And Mao, she piped up, and she said, well, I read a lot of books. And she read a lot of books. And she said, I think I just lumped the Bible into another one of those books that I read, and I forgot to expect God to show up. And so my takeaway point is that I want to expect God to show up. And I thought, oh... That is going to make Kurt very happy. And then my 12-year-old, who was in you know, the kids' service, but she's listening to the discussion in the car, said, yeah, but the problem with that is when you expect God to show up and he doesn't, you're disappointed in God. I thought, oh, wow. And there was no wise parenting moment <laughs> because... <laughs> At age 12, she was saying something I'd been saying for 20 years. <laughs> what do you do when God doesn't show up? 
How do you reconcile that? So over the years, you know, if you've been at this church for long, you hear Kurt talk about these amazing ways to know God, whether it's through tongues, whether it's through devotionals, whether it's through pressing in for healing or intercession, all of these things. And I wasn't finding the life Kurt was talking about in those things. And I'd ask for it, and I'd expect things, and I'd want to see something happen, and there was nothing. And when you start setting expectations like that, after a while, you start asking some really hard questions, if you're honest with yourself. You start wondering if you're doing enough, if you're, if you're really engaging God the way you're supposed to engage God, right? So maybe I, I, maybe I just wasn't doing enough. Maybe I was a second-rate citizen and I didn't count for the special Christianity award. Maybe I should just stop trying because nothing was going to happen anyway. And then the one that would haunt me in the dark times at night, what if God wasn't real? What if all of this was actually a sham? And then I'd brush aside the drama of these questions and say, all right, this isn't really the deal. What's going on? And I realized the real lie, oops, is not up there. <laughs> the real lie is good Christians should look like this. Fill in the blank. And I bet each of you have a blank you can fill in right there. Good Christians look like this. And I realized that lie actually <clears throat> is a family heirloom. I have an amazing family. I have a heritage that blows me away. But there was a tug of war between the family heritage and the more and the life that I knew the Bible promised. Let me introduce you to my family that goes back. This right here is my grandma and grandpa Dossie. They are my mother's parents. And if you'll notice the pictures there, grandpa was a World War II pilot. He flew B-29s in the war. And that is his airplane. It was actually a, yeah, centerfold in Life magazine because it landed <coughs> crash-like on Iwo Jima. And it was one of the second or third airplanes to actually land on the landing strip after it had been secured. <laughs> he was court-martialed because he did not have permission to land there. But he did, and he lived. And my grandfather and my grandmother are just amazing people. The other side of the family, the fast side, because I was Tamara Fast, I was glad to change my name, um, <laughs> is this family. And let's see if I can make this laser thing work. Woohoo! That's my grandpa, and that's my grandma, and just for reference, that's my dad and mom right there, and my brother. Um, grandpa was raised Mennonite. He was a conscientious objector during World War II. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he didn't help the country because he was a nuclear physicist. So you know what he was doing all the way through the war and all the way until he retired for the third time when he was 80. Um, <laughs> and 
Both sets of grandparents were pillars in their community. I'd go visit them for the summer, and I was Edwin Fass's granddaughter. And there was a certain privilege that came with that title. Um, they were Baptist, good Baptist stock, you know. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. <laughs> I don't think my grandfather ever set foot in a movie theater. There were not cards in his household. Family devotions in the morning, church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and you thought Kurt's sermons were long. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's just enough Baptists in that family line that all hope of dancing has been bred out of the genetic pool. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, but with this kind of family heritage, there was a really big list of good Christians do this. This is what good Christians look like. And it's interesting to me that Kurt talked about last week, if you were there, the importance of elders and of wisdom and of building on the shoulders of those that came before you. These were the shoulders that came before me. And all of my cousins, they're walking with God. Okay? That is an amazing thing. And that is a gift from God. That is God's grace that that's happening. But, so you can see, with a background like this, devotions were a part of life. And as I worked on this sermon, it really wasn't until this week that it hit me. Oh, I defined my Christianity by how well my devotions were going. If my devotions were good, I was close with God. If my devotions were bad, I was clearly backsliding. Hmm, interesting measuring stick, eh? So, I'll explain a little bit about my immediate family. Um, my parents then built on the shoulders of grandma and grandpa, right? Good Baptist stock, and my parents went to a non-denominational charismatic church. They even spoke in tongues. <laughs> Which, if you know anything about Baptists, that was quite a step away from what they'd been raised with. Um, and my dad, my dad was a man who worked hard to raise his family to know Jesus. And I know that's not an easy thing to do because I'm raising mine. And he did things back in the 80s that no one was doing. And every day we had family devotions. And that's because every day dad read his Bible. I, I don't know how many times dad has actually read through the Bible because he'd do it every year. And that's how you did it. And there was the time in the morning there was mom at the table with the Bible, with a cup of tea, and usually a piece of toast. Didn't interrupt mom then either because that was her time with God. And they wanted to instill that in us. And they did it in several ways, one of which was family devotions, which was an amazing thing, fighting through the teen years, getting us to sit down in the evening for family devotions when we'd much rather be out playing volleyball with our friends. Or in the morning, Dad was a school psychologist, and he had to be at work at a quarter to seven every morning, and we had family devotions before he left. <laughs> So 6.15, <laughs> blurry-eyed me and my brother got out of bed, and it was five psalms and one proverb, because you can go through the whole book of Psalm in a month that way, and proverbs. And we'd read, and we had family jokes, because we were so tired about stuttering roosters. <laughs> it was strutting roosters, but that's not how it came out at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> I remember a camping trip. And in Dad's desire to instill in me a routine, time with God, 
to know my creator. He looked at my bag of packed goods, and he's like, um, where's your Bible? I'm like, yeah, Bible? No, no Bible. He said, how are you supposed to spend time with God if you don't have your Bible with you? His heart was to instill in me the desire to know God. My 10-year-old self went, ah, I need to make sure I have my Bible every time I go anywhere so I look good. Yeah. <laughs> and as I went into high school, we were in this program that, again, was about trying to get to the heart and to know our Creator and to know God, but they did it through rules. And you had a checklist, which worked well for me. I like checklists. And they had you make vows. And one of the vows they had us make was that you'd read your Bible every day. Okay, I could do that. I was going to be a good Christian. It didn't work. There, there wasn't life there. There was times. There was times when I really knew God. And there are other times it was dry as toast. And finally, finally I just kind of stopped altogether because it just didn't seem to be the life God had promised. And let me tell you about the shame and guilt about putting that aside. It was a secret I kept. And I wasn't going to tell anyone that I wasn't reading the Bible. As a matter of fact, I was trying to explain to my parents my struggle and the way this was working. And, you know, I'm an adult here with kids at this point. And I was telling Dad about that camping experience and how, you know, what I really learned was to bring the Bible with me. And Dad said, yeah, but you've read your Bible every day and you know God, right? This is the only time in my life I ever remember lying to my father. I don't think I looked him in the eye. I just said, yeah, yeah, I do. Because I wanted to be known as the good Christian. When I came on staff here at Lake Sam, anyone who's worked here knows there's the accountability sheets. And I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to do with that? Well, at least I'll start reading again. And I started reading, and I hit those passages. And I think we all have those passages. Um, Kevin talked about it a couple weeks ago with Ananias and Sapphira. Mine was, say, Uzziah and um, the Ark of the Covenant that fell when David was moving it, and then he was killed. Like, I don't get that passage. I don't get that passage where women are supposed to wear head coverings or the one that says women aren't supposed to speak. <laughs> it was a list of do, 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 don't, don't, don't. I had created a lens as I read the Bible that was nothing but rules. So, knowing this about me, when Kurt announced he was going to do a whole series on devotionals, my lovely husband said, you know, I can work from anywhere. How about if we move away for six months till this sermon's over? <laughs> I was thinking, I wonder if we can make that work. <laughs> Clearly, God had something else in store. So all my life, people have told me I'm a perfectionist. And I laughed because I do absolutely nothing perfectly. Ask my children. <laughs> and I realized at some point, oh yeah, I am such a perfectionist that my de definition of perfectionism, I don't even meet that. <laughs> and I had no idea how that perfectionism, how the idealism had undermined my walk with God.
So I'm going to show you a picture here again of the family. Oh, good Christians look like. There's the slide in the wrong order. Okay. <laughs> Kids again. Family snapshot. A moment in time. And don't they look cute? Don't you think? I mean, look at that. Matching pajamas. You've got the fireplace. Everything's just fabulous. But it's a moment. Because what they really felt like was that. <laughs> and if you look at all the pictures around the one snapshot, you will notice they're holding on to my year-and-a-half-year-old so he won't escape. <laughs> you notice the unicorn? Because my three-year-old was not going to take a picture without the unicorn in the picture. And most of the pictures looked like that. <laughs> Missing the child. <laughs> but that one picture doesn't tell you all this. It doesn't tell you of a child one year into the marriage and three more that came in pretty rapid succession. Driving my introvert husband into a very quiet and solitary corner and me, the extrovert, going after him just for some company. It doesn't tell of the days of diapers, of the day when I burned the pot roast so badly anything that had cloth on it was thrown onto our front porch to air out for 48 hours. But that even got better because the next morning the upstairs toilet overflowed and leaked into my kitchen. And by the end of the day, my six-year-old was so frustrated, he had thrown the Lego table through the window, which was not open. <laughs> Bad day in the Lee household. It, it doesn't talk about how you know, everyone, would, all the empty nesters would say, oh, these years go by so quickly, enjoy them. And I'm like, yeah, you don't remember. <laughs> they are not going by fast. And I'm not finding the joy you're supposed to have when you raise these kids. This is not what it's supposed to look like. And Tracy Rohr saved my bacon somewhere along the lines when she said, look, it's the years that go by fast. Honey, the days, they go by really slowly. <laughs> Ah, okay. And I was trying to figure out this respect thing for my husband, right? Because good Christians respect their men. This is how we do it. We defer to them. This is how it looks. But, you know, he wasn't living up to the way I thought a good Christian man should actually look. Starting with, he worked at Microsoft, which meant I didn't see him. I had four kids. Didn't like that very much. Um, and I thought... I, you know, I, I do what I was supposed to do, but it, this wasn't feeling like the respect. I was, I was doing the right thing. And somewhere in there, I went to a wedding shower for Eric's cousin. And his aunt, who was sitting right over there, gave her future daughter-in-law a book. It was a blank journal. She said, look, every night before you go to bed, you need to write down something you're thankful for about your husband. And he can do the same thing for you and it will build gratitude for your man. And I thought, huh, not a bad idea. I can make my husband feel good about himself. So, you like that? <laughs> so, I bought two books and put one on his pillow and one on mine. Yeah, guess which one didn't get filled out? <laughs> and I started writing things I was thankful for. And that worked well for the first night. And then the next night, I thought, yeah, 
Yeah, he stayed with the kids while I worked on something, and I came home, and the dishes weren't done, and the kids were still in dirty diapers, and yeah. All right, I can't write that down, but I can say thank you for watching the kids. Great. And that kept happening on a regular basis. <laughs> I thought, okay, this, this wasn't exactly how it was supposed to work. And God did something at that point. He opened my eyes, and I started to see the things that were on Eric's to-do list that weren't on my to-do list. The fact that my husband did work long hours at Microsoft because he had four kids to support. The fact that he mowed the lawn. He, he encouraged me to go get my master's degree. Not many men do that when they're sitting there with their bachelors. He watched the kids while I wrote papers. And as I started to write these things down, my eyes were open towards who my husband was and what he did that didn't look like anything my list was of what a good Christian man should look like. And God changed my heart towards my man and the respect I had for him blew me away. He wasn't who I thought he should be. I got to see who God created him to be. And it was amazing. And there was nothing I did to create that change. That was God's work in my heart, not me striving. And I went, wow, that's what it's like to feel God change you. But I knew that I wanted to fight the same way for that joy with the rest of my life. I wanted to feel that with my kids. I wanted to know that life Kurt always talks about. And I didn't understand why God wasn't doing it in the rest of my life. Reading my Bible every day, wasn't doing it. Praying, wasn't doing it. And I realized that snapshot that Kurt gave when he brought people up front to tell the testimony, they were a snapshot. It was a moment. It wasn't life all the time. In my perfectionism, in my idealism, I'd put God here. You know, you've got to be really glad that snapshots don't tell the whole story. <laughs> then we'd be stuck in interesting places. But I still wasn't getting to where I wanted to be. And those sermons, mm, and I realized if I started to define God's goodness by the snapshot, those moments are going to leave us struggling because they're not all of life. And God's goodness is beyond the snapshot. But my questions came back anyway. Not doing enough. You're a second-rate citizen. Stop trying. Nothing's going to happen anyway. And is God real? Good Christians don't ask that question. That's not on the list of questions you're supposed to ask. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges 6. Now, this is a story of how God met somebody. It's the story of Gideon. Now, this is a time in Israel's history where they'd walked away from God again. 
And the Midianites had come, and they said they were like a swarm of locusts. They'd come in, and they would take all of the um, Israelites' food, and then they'd leave. And so there was Gideon, and he was the youngest of his family. And he was hiding in the hillside, in a wine press, threshing wheat so no one would find him. And all of a sudden, someone shows up behind him and says, Greetings, O man of valor. And Gideon's like, yeah, who are you talking to? <laughs> I'm talking to you. God wants to redeem Israel. And I love this because Gideon said what's probably in a lot of our hearts. He's like, yeah, well, if God's so good, where is he now? Where are all the miracles that he talks about in the past? Tell me this. The angel of the Lord took that sass. <laughs> and he said, I got a plan for you. And he led Gideon out and spoke to him and said, this is what you're to do. And Gideon said, okay. But I tell you what, I'm not just, you know, just bear with me here for a minute. I'm going to do this. This is really God. I've got the sheepskin here. I'm going to put it out on the threshing floor. And in the morning, could you make sure that all the ground is dry, but the sheepskin is wet? Then I'll know God really talked to me. And God said, yeah, I can do that for you. So in the morning, sure enough, Gideon gets up, the sheepskin is soaked. Gideon says, great, great. Tell you what, one more time. Can you make the sheepskin dry and everything else wet? If I was God at this point, I'd be going, give me a break. But God said, yeah, I can do that for you. Sure enough, the next morning, sheepskin dry, ground wet, and out Gideon goes with his 22,000 men against the hundreds of thousands that were out there. And then God, bless his heart, whittled his force down to 300 men. <laughs> and Gideon says, okay. And God looks at Gideon. And God sees in Gideon's heart and says, hey, I know you need a little bit more encouragement. You go with your friend into the camp over there and listen. So Gideon sneaks out at night into the camp, and he hears this man say, I had a dream last night. There was this giant loaf of barley, and it came rolling down the hills and flattened all of our tents. Strange dream. And his friend says, I know what that means. That loaf of barley, that's Gideon, and he's going to come through, and he's going to wipe us all out. And Gideon went, wow. And he went back, and that's, Pretty much what happened. <laughs> but God knew what Gideon needed. I'd always looked at that story as one of, well, this is how you check to see if God wants you to do something, or of a serious lack of faith on Gideon's part. But I don't think that's what God wants us to see in that story. And I had a moment of going, oh, I just saw a story that wasn't a bunch of rules. I just saw a story where God cared intimately and if God that's in the Bible that's there for me look God coddles us because we're weak not because he's tired of us <laughs> it's a parent helping a child walk Philippians 1 6 says I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God 
will continue this work. Not, I'm going to be so great, I will do it. God has it. He says, if we're faithless, he will remain faithful because he can't deny himself. God's amazing that way. And knowing these dark places that haunted me, I could look and I could see those moments where God had coddled me if I looked. I'd just spent five years finishing my master's degree with three babies and one amazing husband. <laughs> and I went to renew my teaching certificate. That was kind of the goal of this master's degree. And when I went and I read the fine print, I realized I couldn't do it. I hadn't taught the correct amount of consecutive days needed to renew my license. And wow, was that a devastating blow. <laughs> and so I took it to God and said, all right, <clears throat> what's up? And I thought, yeah, I'd do my master's again because I'd learned so much. So that wasn't the deal. And I thought, oh, I was letting that little piece of paper define me. It said I was a teacher. It said, should anything ever happen to my husband, I could provide for myself. And that piece of paper was gone. Did I trust God to provide for me? Did I trust God to define me? And those were hard questions because I was a mom with four kids who did not much but, you know, change diapers and clean up messes. At least that's how it felt at the moment. And so one day I went to the grocery store with all four kids. And any of you who've ever been to the grocery store with four kids know that that is not your favorite time of the day. <laughs> Okay, and there they all are going around the cart, and the lady there says, hey, do your kids want some balloons? I'm thinking, yeah, balloons, four kids, balloons, car. Eh. Yeah, sure, we'll take the balloons, four Mylar balloons. She's like, yeah, how many do you want? I'm like, yeah, I, I got to have four. There's no way I can take any less than four because that's really bad. And into the car I get with four Mylar balloons, four children, and one very harried mother, okay? And you know balloons in the car, they don't stay put. <laughs> All around the car they go, and I'm thinking, how am I going to explain four balloons to Eric? Whatever. So I get home, put the balloons on the counter, the kids go do their thing, and Eric looks at me and says, yeah, balloons? I'm like, yeah, I, well, and I start to explain the story. He says, no. Do you see what those balloons say? I'm like, yeah, yeah, they say number one teacher. A plus teacher. God had just sent me a bouquet of balloons. <laughs> and he'd just reinstated me in his kingdom and in his way, meeting me right where I needed to be met that day. My God was real. My perfect ideal was the lie. Sometime in here, I felt God drawing me back to him start with the Bible again. And I, you know, I tried with the soap thing and soap just, it didn't work for me because I kept reading with my lens that said, do, 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 don't, don't, don't. And I went, where am I going to go? And I thought, well, let's fall back on a very familiar pattern. Birthed at six o'clock in the morning. Five Psalms, one Proverbs, get through the book in a month. It was a desperate choice. I do not like Psalms. Um, 
to me, psalm is just a bunch of, you know, God, smite thine enemy, destroy this person, make sure they never have children, and whine, whine, whine. I'm like, David, let me give you some cheese to go with the wine. And, and there I was. But this time, oh, look at that. Um, God had something different, and he showed me this verse. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Oh, be still and wait. It wasn't that God wasn't there. He was nurturing my trust in him in his time. I need to wait for him. And then he gave me a tool. A tool to help fight those things that come at you in, you know, like February when you haven't seen the sun for three months of depression, of darkness, of I'm not doing enough. And he took me to those verses where David wants you to smite all of his enemies. And he says, you put your enemy in there, your enemy of frustration, your enemy of no one appreciates you, your enemy of I'm too tired to go on, and I will defend you from that enemy. I will make that enemy like dust. And every time I did it, I could physically feel the weight lifting up off me. He was fighting my battle. He fought those enemies away. It, it wasn't a magic charm. It was God meeting me right where I was at. It wasn't me striving. It wasn't me saying, oh, I shouldn't worry. I should trust God. Because every time you say that to yourself, and those worries come back, you feel like you failed all over again. Because it's you saying you shouldn't worry. But I just gave it to God, and he fought it. And there are times when I still wanted to wallow in my emotions. It felt good, let's be honest about it. Pity parties sometimes have their place, sort of. Um, <laughs> but each time I gave it to God, he took it. And he did battle. And if you were at Kurt's sermon a few weeks ago, I can tell you scientifically what was happening. He was taking that primal pain down there in the amygdala, and he was bringing it up to my frontal cortex where it could be fought. But as my kid's favorite author says, just because you know how it's done doesn't mean it's not magic. <laughs> God designed us. He knew what would work. When he told us to rest, when he told us to cast our cares on him, he knew why it would work. So I learned God could meet me in a very life-changing way right there in his scripture. But we weren't done yet. <laughs> I knew there was more, and, and there was a season. I'd hit a season in my life where who I was and who I had defined myself to be was being stripped away. And the gifts I thought I had to offer were no longer received. And I was in a dark place. And I didn't know what to do. So I dove back into the Psalms, and God met me there. He was there, but then there was the rest of my day. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with the rest of my day because this wasn't a big deal. I didn't have cancer. <laughs> this was something I should be able to fight. Good Christians shouldn't let this beat them. 
But God had told me he wouldn't let go of me. And he took me over to Hosea. I think of Hosea as the prophet doing what God tells him to do. And God tells him to go marry a prostitute, <laughs> which would not be high on my list of things to do. <laughs> and Hosea does it. And, you know, in these kind of stories, you'd like to think, ah, oh, the woman was transformed, redeemed, they lived happily ever after. No. <laughs> he had two or three kids that were not his own. <laughs> he had several that were out. You know, she, she, he had to go find her and bring her back and live with her. It was not a happy situation. But God put that in the Bible to say, you can never go too far from me. I will always bring you back. I will fight for you. The Bible says one of God's names is, is I am jealous, which would also be one of those scriptures that I struggled with a little bit that doesn't make sense. Well, God isn't jealous like that. <laughs> He's not afraid of your other friends and doesn't want you. He's jealous like this. <laughs> that would be my husband and oldest daughter. Um, <laughs> Uh-huh. God is angry at the sin that ensnares and the things that come that keep you from him. His jealousy burns because he knows how those things destroy his precious people and he will fight for you. That's why he's called the jealous God because he wants you holy because he knows the beauty of him with you. God in the Old Testament is often portrayed as a just and holy above everything else. And when you read it, some of those stories are hard. They're just hard. And we start forming in our brains this image of God, and we know that it's not true, but we kind of picture him as an orphanage director from a Dickens novel, you know? <laughs> Even though... Because we, we couch it as, well, it's good for us. It's not good for us. It's tender for us. In my studying in education, I learned a lot about developmental psychology. And Piaget is one of the big developmental psychologists. And any of you who've done education know Piaget. And he studied how children develop. And at what point they understand things. And his work is very important to understanding how we learn. For instance, we can look at this and we completely understand it. But for a child, those are symbols. They mean nothing until they discover its truth. So we have here two objects. And until they can equate these two objects with the symbol two up there, this makes no more sense than if your child, three-year-old, says to you, I love algebra. It doesn't mean anything to them. It is parroted knowledge. And so they have to learn how to own something and to connect these symbols. And the other thing Piaget talks about is how they form their perceptions, and those perceptions become their reality. And that's very important, that people's perception is their reality. 
And young moms there, I don't know how many of you are here with newborn babies or <laughs> and such, and you feel like you're at home, stuck, <laughs> rocking babies, changing their shirt, changing your shirt, changing their diaper. But at that age, those babies are learning what it means to trust. They're learning that when they cry, someone will pick them up. Someone will feed them when they're hungry. Someone will hold them tight when they're upset. And they learn that at this age. And if they don't get it at this age, chances are really good, they're never going to get it. You're teaching them about Abba. You're teaching them about Daddy. And don't underestimate your job at that point. I think the same thing happens in our Christian life. We form our spiritual perceptions, and we don't understand how deeply they get lodged. <laughs> um, my father was a rules guy. He knows how to make things work. And I love my daddy so much. <laughs> and he gave me shoulders to stand on that are incredible. That so many people would like to have a daddy that loved them, that made time each night to do devotions, even when the kids fought it, that traveled them all over the United States so they could see the different national parks. But somewhere in my perception, I took the rules and thought those rules are what Christianity is about. God didn't want me to stay here. He wanted me to grow on the shoulders and take me to the new place. One way he'd reach me over the years, when the Bible was dry and when praying wasn't working, was through books. Because these authors had a different lens when they approached God. And they were able to see something that my lens kept me from seeing, but I knew was there. Because my mother was love. Not that my dad wasn't, that's not what I'm saying. My mom showed grace and encouragement and an acceptance. And God used that place and started drawing me to his heart. And I knew that was there. And these authors, they'd wrestled with God. They got a new name in that wrestling, and they were able to present things that made my heart go, oh, that's the God I know is there. And one of those authors, and some of you women probably have heard of her if you haven't read this one, is Anne Voskamp's A Thousand Gifts. Anne knew dark places, and she knew there was more, and she wanted the more, and that resonated with me. And she started doing a word study on the word Eucharisto, which is where we get the Eucharist, which is communion in the Catholic tradition. And that word comes from several Greek words, grace, joy, and thanksgiving. That through thanksgiving, joy comes. And the challenge that had come to Anne was to find a thousand things to be thankful for and see what happened. I think she's over 4,000 now. 
I started in my little journal, <laughs> started writing each night, just little point by point. And you know, when this journal is sitting there waiting for you at night, you start looking at your world differently. Because <laughs> you know you got to write something in this, right? <laughs> and so instead of looking at the clouds that were there from October to July, <laughs> I found the sun breaks. And I saw what they did on the hills. And I wrote that in my journal. I was attuned to the fact that while my kids were bickering all day long, as lovely children do, love you guys, <laughs> there, was, there was that one time where they stopped. And I had nothing to do with it. And they walked away. <gasps> Miracles don't cease. <laughs> I saw God moving in my life. When I was in the crowd of people, that I knew, and yet I still felt alone and started to feel, you know, sorry for myself, there was the one person who smiled at me. And I remembered that, and I'd write it down. Guys, I started to see what God is doing instead of expecting him to do what I want. So, instead of expecting God to show up, <laughs> I saw where he was. Can I tell you there's joy in that? <laughs> nothing new in my life. Nothing in my life had changed. It was the same life. But what I saw, what I wrote down, that changed me. I could read through these journals, and I got two of them now, haha, <laughs> and I could see a pattern. I could see the things that I hadn't prayed about, but God and I certainly had been talking a lot about, in my children, in my homeschooling, in my friends, in my church. And because I'd written things down, I could see where God was moving and was astounded by his love and his care. It wasn't me doing anything. I wasn't striving to make it happen. God did it. I thought of the gratitude journal I'd done for Eric early in our marriage and at how it had changed my heart towards my man. Is it any wonder that doing the same thing would change my heart towards my creator? God was bringing me to his heart. It involves the Bible. It involves prayer, but it is so outside of my box of what I thought it should look like. Our God is big. He is diverse, and he has an infinite number of ways he wants to reach you and to reveal his tenderness. That's what God does. He meets you right where you're at and moves you to the next my background is a gift beyond compare I wouldn't trade it for the world and I've got a lot of friends who would give anything to have my background because their friends are littered with addiction or sexual temptations and I say you need to stop right there 
Because our society has labeled those big sins as a problem. But guys, I got to tell you, pride and the thought that you can do it on your own separates you from God just as surely as any sin does. And it's way more insidious because you think you're good. You don't know you need God. And you do. My devotional journey is not over. I think I thought at some point I could check it off. My good Christians do this list. I think I need to check that list out. And instead go, wow, look what God is doing for me. Look where he is meeting me. Oh, who would have thought? Because God doesn't want good Christians. He wants people who want him. That's what he wants. Let's pray. God, your tenderness astounds me. What you do and how you meet us is so personal, so tender. And God, I know you're going to meet each one of the people that are here that way. You have something. You have a bouquet of balloons for them. You've given them bouquets of balloons, so God, help us all open our eyes and see right where you're at and God, if any of these tools help, if, if looking in the Psalms and helping you fight the battle for them helps, if writing a gratitude journal helps, if books take them someplace they can't get to on their own, if talking to a friend reveals your heart in a new way, bring that to their mind. May we be people filled with your joy, with thankfulness, May we know what it means to be one with you. May we want you with all of our heart. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the gifts you've given us, whether we expect them or not. Amen. Thank you so much, Tamara. Yeah, yeah seriously, it was wonderful.